Acts chapter 19. Paul is on his third and final journey as we number them. You need to understand that Paul actually made some other trips too that we don't list as those three principal missionary journeys. But he's in Ephesus now. Ephesus is a city. It's a coastal city on the far western coast of Asia Minor. It was one of the major seaports in the Mediterranean Sea there. It was the most important city in the Roman province of Asia. So that part of Asia Minor in those days was called Asia. But it was a Roman province. One of the most outstanding things about it was, uh, was the temple of Artemis was there. It's ranked among the seven wonders of the world. I mean, it was this magnificent, large, unbelievable, it was twice as big as the Parthenon in Athens. For a time, it was the largest building in the Greek world. In other words, there was nothing like it in, not just in Greece itself, but in, in the world as the Greeks had moved into it. Another unique thing about Ephesus is even though it was very Greek-oriented, it was also, had a, also had a significant Jewish population there as well. And these are the ones that Paul is first and foremost ministering to, the Jewish population. Paul remained in Ephesus for two-plus years. Many of the places he visited on his missionary journeys, he was not there for all that long, but we would all consider two-plus two years to be a significant amount of time, which should tell us some things. And one of those is this, is there was lots of work there for Paul to do. And maybe it's also a measure of the fact that it was not only work that the Lord had for Paul to do, but it was difficult work, not easy work. The kind of work that took time and effort. And one of the things that we focused on as we studied this book of Acts too is we need to understand that Paul was, every step he took, he was following the leading of the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul is still in Ephesus for one reason and that's because the Holy Spirit is kept him there. He hasn't had any sense of the Holy Spirit leading him anywhere else yet. So while he's here in Ephesus, he makes the most time of it. I'd love to go to General Assembly for a lot of reasons. And one of those is I get to visit with guys I haven't seen in a while. And many of those guys are guys that I went to seminary with 30 years ago. Then when I went back to seminary to get my, my D-men a few years after that, the guys that I met and, you know, I spent time with and, uh, and that sort of thing. And, and, you're, and one of the things that always comes up in conversation is, where are you? You know, what are you doing? Where are you, where are you ministering now? And, of course, I've been here the whole time. And I've had a lot of shocked expressions. <laughs> really? <laughs> I've been in five or six different, no, sometimes I hear things like, I've been in five or six different churches since I got out of seminary, and you're the same place?
sometimes I wonder about them, and you know, I don't make judgments or anything like that, but I wonder why they've moved so often. Is it really because the Holy Spirit is moving them, or because they've been involved in a ministry that got really, really difficult to deal with and, and be a part of and whatever, and the easy thing to do was to leave and go somewhere else? Ministry is hard. I don't care where you go. But it seems as though some of some people in my position move every few years. And you wonder sometimes, is this because the Holy Spirit is actually moving them or because they're either dissatisfied with the circumstances they're in or they just are dissatisfied with the people they minister to? Well, see, that was nothing at all a, a part of Paul's picture. Paul was where the Holy Spirit wanted him to be. And he stayed there as long as the Holy Spirit wanted him to be there. Do, do you, what has happened? There's already been rides and stuff. Don't you think that would be the easy thing for Paul to say, you know what, these people don't want me here. I don't really want to be here. Let's get out of Dodge. But he doesn't do that. This is hard ministry. This is not easy stuff. He stays until the Holy Spirit moves him somewhere else. And you see this pattern in his ministry all through Scripture. Now I can tell you this. I'm here for one reason, and that's because I have never felt or had a sense of the Holy Spirit moving me somewhere else. And I'm assuming that you haven't because you haven't kicked me out. I'm here as long as he wants me to be here. The reality is this. I've been the only teaching elder here at Springs since its inception for one of three possible reasons. Number one, even though God has called me to leave, I just won't do it. That's not a good place for me to be, do you think? Number two, God has told you that he wants me to leave, and you have refused to listen. And number three, I'm where he wants me to be. Now, are there any other possibilities? And see, what I would say to you is there is only one legitimate reason for a minister to move from one place to another, and that is because the Holy Spirit moves him. It's time for him to go on to something different. Today, I am one of the longest tenured pastors in Central Florida Presbytery. I mean, I'm right close to the top. Most of the guys that are in our presbytery now have come since I did. Then here in Ephesus, just like we saw in the other places Paul has been so far, God is doing extraordinary miracles through Paul. One of the things was this, is handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick and their diseases left them. And evil spirits came out, isn't it? 
Have you ever heard anything like that happen in today's world? Well, let me tell you a story. Love Pastor Sam Kasuli in Uganda. Had some really deep conversations with him through the years. Don't really stay in touch with him anymore. But uh, he's a very, very special person. Dick and Barb will tell you the same thing, and Walter too. Just he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Loves the Lord. He and his wife came at one point years ago. They stood right here on the stage with me, which I never thought would happen. But when we got to Uganda last time, you know, I'm always talking to, you know, with Sam about what's going on in the church and stuff like that. And he was telling me about this guy who had shown up who was supposedly an evangelist. Uh, and he was telling people to send, the, to send him handkerchiefs and, you know, stuff like that. And if you do that, I'll touch it and pray over it. And then I'll send it back to you and you will be healed from your affliction. Oh, but by the way, you need to send me a little bit of money, too, when you do that. Now, you can understand people that, that are suffering really terrible illnesses and things like that, they're willing to do just about anything. And if there's even a slim possibility of them being healed. But can you imagine someone taking advantage of people like this? Because we know it's just a hoax. But the fact of the matter is the Holy Spirit was powerful in Paul. The Holy Spirit was powerfully present in Paul. When people heard about such things as this, fear fell upon them. As a result, the name of Jesus was extolled. There were other people in the city trying to call upon the name of Jesus. Some itinerant Jewish exorcists. Things didn't turn out the way they thought they were going to. The evil spirits they cast out of people <laughs> spoke to him. Jesus I know and Paul, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit overpowered them, and they fled wounded, beat up, and banged up because they had falsely invoked the name of Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But when the residents found out about this, they heard about this fear fell upon them because they knew that something was happening in their midst that was unique. As a result, the name of Jesus was exalted even more. It's funny how things like this happen sometimes. People have the intentions of bringing discredit to Jesus and his followers, but on the other end of whatever they do, the exact opposite happens. The name of just Jesus is actually lifted high. When we talk about witch doctors and things like that, you know, black magic and all that kind of stuff, most of us don't really have a clue about things too much. 
reality is this. If you just look at statistics, the, you know, the Wiccan movement and things like that are growing exponentially in our culture today. So, so the darkness, the spiritual darkness, in a sense, is increasing in the good U.S. of A. It's been around all along, but there's a real intensification of it going on right now. So even though we haven't really had to deal with this sort of thing much in our own life, the time may come when we do. I mean, it's right at our door. I heard a lot of stories in Uganda from the Ugandan nationals and some of them are pastors, other people. But one of the things that people don't realize is there is a real spiritual darkness in places like Africa where you sense the presence of evil. Just, it's just thick in the air in places. But you know what? Those missionaries brought some witch doctors to faith in Jesus Christ. And they said that they would have these ceremonies and all the witch doctors would bring all their trinkets and this, that, and the paraphernalia that they used in their black arts and, and whatever. And they built a big bonfire and they burned all of it up. As we said before, witches are growing in number at home. Sometimes it's hard for us to relate to what's going on in the rest of the world when it comes to particular things. We tend to judge everything based upon what we know, what we experience, that sort of thing. Ephesus was not a Greek city, but the Greeks had a whole lot of emphasis or uh, influence in Ephesus. There was a great Greek presence there. And Paul stays there as long as the Lord would have him to be there. But eventually he determines it's time for him to move westward. His purpose is to retrace his steps that he took on his second missionary journey, principally and primarily not so much to plant new churches, but to check on the status of the ones that he had planted on his second journey. But there was what is described in Scripture as no little disturbance concerning the way. Artemis was the patron goddess of the Greeks in Ephesians. Supposedly twin sister to Apollo, the goddess of the hunt. She drove a chariot, supposedly drawn by stags. 
that special emphasis in Ephesus. And there were people making money off of the Artemis idol. Silversmiths. They made shrines dedicated to Artemis. And a fellow named Demetrius, who was a silversmith, evidently brought attention to the fact that by de- uh, convincing people to convert to Christianity, Paul was actually hurting their business. They were losing business because of the Apostle Paul. And as a result, was described as no little disturbance arose concerning the way, saying not only this trade or of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. We said the, uh, the temple of Artemis was, was built around the 6th century B.C. For a long period of time, it was the largest building in the ancient Greek world, twice the size of the Parthenon. Resulted in a big disturbance. It was as if the whole city was going to be ripped apart. Some of Paul's traveling companions, Gaius and Art, uh, Aristarchus, they laid their hands on them. I also consider this morning that Christianity really is indeed a radical religion. And is often noted for causing great disturbances in places where it spreads. And this is a big this is a big jump. for the average Greek to make. Most of the Greeks and the Romans were polytheists. They believed in a multitude of gods, not just one god, but many gods. So just in the simple fact that Christianity teaches that there is one and only one God was, would have been a most radical idea to people, to the Greeks and to the Romans and to other people in the world at that time. As a matter of fact, Judaism was perhaps the only significant religion in the, in the known world at that time that it taught that there is only one God. All the others were polytheistic. So we need to understand that Christianity was considered to be revolutionary for all kinds of reasons, but one of those was its absolute and clear declaration that there is only one God, and he doesn't exist in the form of idols. He doesn't live in temples that are constructed by men. 
the whole idea that there is one God and that one God exists as three persons was absolutely revolutionary. It was absolutely new. People by nature are theists. It's easy to prove that. Just look around at the world around you. How many people worship a God of some sort? How many religions are there in the world? How many religions have there been in the world through history? God is placed inside every person in innate knowledge that he in fact exists. People know it. Know what, people go to great lengths to deny it. But the reality is every person that has ever breathed air knows that there's a God. Because God has put that knowledge in each one of us. So people by nature are theists. They believe in God. But the problem is they misunderstand who that God is. This is why God sent forth the prophets. And more than that, this is one of the big reasons why God sent forth Jesus. The people would come through him to understand and worship the one and only true God. But again, people are by nature theists. That's why you have all these false religions all over the place. And it's been in, like that in the history of the world. We also have sin, which is a big part of the picture, which causes people to create and worship false gods. It's a sin that twists and bends our innate knowledge of who he is. Isaiah paints this, this vivid picture in chapter 44 of his writings. The carpenter cuts down cedar cypress tree or an oak. So get the picture. Here you have this guy out. He goes out in the woods. He chops it down or saws down a tree. Then what does he do? He takes part of it. He warms himself. He builds a fire and uses it to keep himself warm. He makes bread. He uses it to cook his food. But he has a little bit of wood left over. And what does he do? He fashions it into some image, and he bows down and worships it. Isn't that ridiculous? That's what Isaiah is saying. This is, this is absolutely ridiculous that anybody would do this, but people do it all the time. Images made of wood, stone, or metal exist, but that is absolutely all they do. Period. They just are. They can't do anything at all. Nothing. Except maybe fall over, somebody gives them a shove. And then they can't get up. They can't do anything. 
why are we focusing so much on this stuff? It's because you need to understand something. This teaching that they were hearing from Paul and the others was radical. It was like something they had never heard in their whole life. It was contrary to everything that they had ever believed, everything that had ever been taught, everything that they had ever practiced. And yet there were a few who believed, even though a good number of them didn't. A riot takes place. You need to understand that, that Ephesus was under Roman rule. So now we hear the voice of reason in the form of the town clerk saying, you ought to be quiet and do nothing. We really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion. And with those words, he brings an end to basically the riot that is going on. So what, why? Because people are afraid the Romans are going to come in and put them in their place. But there's another thing going on here. This is the means by which God used to deliver Paul and the others. The situation Paul finds himself in here is nothing new. He's going to be in this same circumstance over and over again. <laughs> he had been, doesn't change, it's going to be. There's a sense in which you might say this was Paul's normal life. Conflict. Constantly, continually. Being run out of towns. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 21b through 30, he paints a very vivid snapshot of what life as a missionary was for him. He was in hostile circumstances often. And this is what he writes. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I also dare to boast of that. I am talking like a madman with greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of 40 lashes, which is 30, less one, which is 39 lashes, which is a maximum number according to Old Testament law they could apply. Three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked a, a night and day, adrift at the sea, on frequent journeys, and in danger of rivers from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers through betrayal, dangers in toil, hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then there's this. 
the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, the Apostle Paul knew what suffering for Jesus was. was. He endured it constantly, incessantly, for a long time. I think it would not be too far of a stretch to say that Paul, next to Jesus, Paul suffered for the faith more than anybody else ever has. All according to God's bidding. Because we understand this, that God was in control even of all this stuff. How much have we suffered for Jesus, really? When was the last time we suffered for Jesus? In any way, shape, or form? Sometimes we look upon life in the church as just a place for us to be, to be comfortable and co- comfort and cozy, and people here love me, and I get all the good stuff that I want. I'd imagine there may be some people that wind up going to their deathbed without ever really suffering for Jesus in any sense of the word, probably at all. You know why? Because they saw their faith as being exclusively and absolutely for their benefit. Not for anyone else's benefit. And that's just not an accurate picture of things. God calls every one of us to ministry. God calls us, you know, there are people who are specially gifted in evangelism. Does that mean that we're not supposed to do evangelism? All of us, it doesn't mean that at all. It's part of our package. Think about it. When you came to faith, and some of you don't remember, but I, would, I don't know how many that is in this room, but there's some of this people in this room that probably cannot remember a time when they didn't believe. But if you're one of those people, you are very rare. Most of us at some point in our life have a coming to Jesus moment. That we, as we speak right now, we have brothers and sisters that are being beaten for their faith. As we're speaking, not something that happened yesterday, not ten minutes ago, right now. They're imprisoned all around this world. Starving very often, deprived of sleep. This, that, and the other, all with a goal. And the goal is to get them to give up the ghost, to give up Jesus, to recant of their faith.
Christianity, my friends, is not for the faint-hearted. It just isn't. It's a call to action. Certainly some people more than others. But it's something that we all have in common. To be about our Father's business in everything that we do. Sometimes I wonder about myself. Sometimes I wonder how much my life really looks different than the average person out there. Probably in a lot of ways not much at all. Never think about that? Am I really all that different? Let me just say this. There's, there's, there are things that are blessings as a believer. I mean, I've seen I mean, I've, some of the experiences I've had. They're hallmarks in my life. But you know what? More often than not, those experiences have to do with someone coming to faith in Jesus. And you know what? Very often, those people are the last persons other people thought on the face of the earth that would ever become a disciple of Christ. Paul was a missionary. His missionary field was pretty big. The reality is we're all called as disciples of Christ to be missionaries. Our, our mission field may be little teeny tiny. But whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we all have one. Every one of us. And it's simply the circle of people that you move in, the people that live around you, the people that we, maybe you work with or have worked with, the people that you know, family members. And Paul has shown himself to be faithful, 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 even in very difficult, almost impossible circumstances. He did not let his fears overcome him. I tell you right now, you know this. My personal opinion is this, is that the thing that Christians are most afraid of is evangelism. And let me tell you, I think it's, in, it's, I think it's a good thing to have a healthy fear of it. It's a totally different thing when we let our fears overcome us and paralyze us and keep us from being faithful and doing what Christ has called us to do. What, we, what would we have done if we were Paul and we had this opposition, people calling out for our lives? Now, I don't know that anybody here has ever experienced anything like that or come, anything that comes close to that. We know this, we understand this, that Jesus was afraid. He 
pled with the Father to take this cup from me. I don't want to be crucified. I don't want to die on the cross. I don't want to go through all of that. But he didn't let those fears paralyze him. We can't either. I'm sorry. I wish I could tell you otherwise. God gives us opportunities, every one of us, and we need to take advantage of it. We need to be looking for opportunities. There are people in your life that are not believers. Have you ever shared the gospel with those people? Have you ever shared the gospel with family members that you know are unbelieving? Have you ever even tried to? Because see, what most people want to do is they want to make that my job. That's just not scriptural. It's something that every Christian is called to do, to witness of our faith to other people, period. Nobody gets a free pass on this. And it can be scary. But look at Paul. He had real reason to be afraid. You've heard me say this before, but, you know, I've, I don't know how many people I've shared the gospel with, but a good number of people, you know, in my lifetime. I've only had one person react to what I told them ne- in a very severely negative way. One person out of certainly hundreds. Most people will give you the opportunity to share with them what you have to say with them, and they will do it politely. Most people But one of the things that needs to come clear, be very clear when you're doing it is this, is you're doing it not out of duty, not because you have to, because you care for that person. And you want for that person to know who you know. You want for that person to have the privileges and the rights of being a child of God like you do. How can we how can we sit and do nothing? What does that say about our faith? Really? There's a world out there that's in desperate need of <laughs> every day that passes, it looks a little more like the world of Paul. And remember this too, Jesus had his fears. It's okay to be afraid. Matter of fact, let me just tell you this, if you're not afraid, then I think maybe there's something wrong with you. But again, we can't let that fear paralyze us. We have to be faithful to our calling. All of us. That's how things work. Well, we're going to be serving the Lord's Supper. What do you see here? 
suffering. 